uh, two old ladies were walking out of church uh, one Sunday morning. One said, my, that preacher certainly preaches for a long time. Her friend replies, no, he really doesn't preach a long time. It just seems like a long time. Now, I wonder what those ladies would have made of a service that lasts about six hours, mainly of Bible reading and preaching, during which time the people stood for the whole six hours. Not only that, they came back the next day for more. That was the remarkable situation which we've just had read to us from Nehemiah chapter 8, our slide. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Six hours. So you're getting off lightly today. You've adjusted your, your watches. Previous to chapter 8, I know that you've been learning about the work of Nehemiah uh, in getting the walls rebuilt and all the opposition and hassle and struggle he had with people who were both inside and outside trying to frustrate that work. And I'm sure uh, you will have made links with your own Christian experience in terms of the struggle that there often is in getting anything done in the Christian life of worth and value. His work had been well done. In spite of opposition and hindrances, the walls had been rebuilt and the city had come into a measure of peace. Then in chapter 7 we read of how Nehemiah gets the, uh, the nobles, the rulers and the people together so that family uh, records can be clearly established. And now at the start of chapter 8, we read of this gathering of the people to listen to the reading of the Holy Scriptures. Can I say thank you to those who put the preaching rotor together that you gave me chapter 8? Because actually, it's a lovely chapter to preach on. Because it really is about God's law, God's word, and the importance of knowing God's word and understanding it. And in many ways, that is my own testimony of faith. Just a bit about my spiritual background. I grew up uh, nominally Church of England. Mum and Dad would take us to church at Christmas and, if we're lucky, at Easter, or unlucky, as we thought. Boarding school followed and chapel every day. Confirmation as well, which I didn't really understand, but I had to go through it. I did pray, but I feel now it was more of a kind of uh, God bless mum and dad and everyone at home. And it was a kind of insurance policy, really, to make sure that I managed to survive the experience of being in boarding school. I remember putting the, my pillow under, my head under the pillow and just praying earnestly that I would be okay the next day and the next day after that and so on. I was a bit of a failure in my early years at school. I didn't do very well in my exams. I mean, maths is just one example, but there were others as well. I only really came into my own educationally when I got to A-level and I started to work hard and understand really what it was all about. I took to uh, history and RE in a big way and I decided to go on and study both of those at university in a theological uh, history degree. I went to university in Southampton, as it happens, um, and studied under a theological professor who barely believed in God. And, of course, that set the tone for the Department of Theology in Southampton at that time. 
where we were told to question absolutely everything, and that included, of course, the Bible. The first year confirmed what I'd always suspected, which is the Bible can't be trusted and there's no real point reading it. At best, it's just stories made up to try and help us through difficult times in our lives. At worst, it's not true at all, and it ought to be just discarded. During my first year, I met a Christian young man who happened to be in the hall of residence next to me, and we got to know each other quite well, and he was a strong, keen Christian. And he said to me, you know, Howard, you ought to stop being so critical. If you're going to look at the Bible, why don't you stop studying it and start reading it? And reading it with the expectation that perhaps it might have something to say to you. To you, rather than just to your brain. And I kind of undernerd, and in the end I thought, well, Paul's a good guy, and he's, I respect him for his Christian faith, I'll, I'll give it a go. And so I started to read the Bible with an attitude of, God, if you are there, then if you've got something to say to me, perhaps I ought to be listening to you. And I felt almost immediately, as soon as I put myself in that particular frame of mind, I started to hear from God. I started to find that what I was reading in the Bible made sense to me personally and often disturbed me because of the things it was pointing out about my own life. That experience of starting to read the Bible in a, a right way, along with C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which is an absolute classic, those two things uh, really brought on my sort of Christian conversion, if you like. So what I have for you today is really partly my own journey of faith because I have three headings for you and these all reflect in a way my spiritual journey. So firstly, notice from our passage today the people's reading of the law. I had to start reading it as opposed to studying it. Now for the people of Nehemiah's day this would of course have been a reading of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament from Genesis through to Deuteronomy. On this first day, they probably got to middle Leviticus, I suspect. And of course, they wouldn't have had um, access to copies of the written word. Copies of the law of Moses were probably very rare, because they had to all be written out by hand, of course. And only the priests and the scribes would have been able to read it. But the people in Nehemiah's day knew that God had spoken to their forefathers and they were anxious to know what he'd said. Notice how the people came. They came eagerly. It says in verse 1, they assembled as one man. That's just an expression, of course. But as one man. This was no fringe little Bible study group of people who were particularly keen to find out what God was saying. This was everybody. Everybody came together in that square. All were eager to hear what God would say to them through his word. They were, it seems, hungry for spiritual growth alongside the physical growth of their city. Isn't that one way to build up a fellowship? When there's a unity of purpose and a hunger to hear from God and to learn from him through his word. Building up a fellowship is about having that, that unified desire to hear from God and to move forward in his way. What about you today? Are you all, to a man, to use Nehemiah's expression, eager to hear God's word, read 
and taught. Not just on Sunday, but every day. In New Testament times, Paul instructs Timothy to give attention in church meetings, quote, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Give attention, Timothy, to having the Scriptures read out publicly, to exhort people, to encourage them, to build them up, to teach them. That should be fundamental to what you are going to do in your ministry. Well, of course, until the 15th century and the invention of the printing press in our country, the Bible had to be copied by hand, uh, and there'd probably only be one copy in a, in a, in a city or a, a town. And I gather they used to chain these, these copies to pulpits in churches, so anybody could read it if they wished, but most of them couldn't read anyway. Since most people were illiterate, the Bible had to be publicly read and explained to the common people by the priests and so on. Of course, today, now, everybody, virtually everybody can read, and Bibles are n- numerous, uh, even on phones, so we don't need to, um, to, to go to a particular place to read it. And we don't have the excuse of, well, I haven't got one, therefore I can't read it. Here in Nehemiah's day, the physical building of the walls had been completed. Now it was time for the spiritual building of their lives. And that's so important, isn't it? Much more important than physical building is heart building, life building. Much more important than having even a building to worship in is having people whose hearts are wanting to worship. And it seems in Nehemiah's day that they recognize that. And that's why to a man they come together to listen to Ezra the scribe as he was going to read from God's law. In fact, chapters 8 to 10 are the core part of the book of Nehemiah because they deal with people's spiritual condition before God. By chapter 8, they're no longer kind of exposed to to robbers and armies because they're behind the security of these new walls. But there's something else they're required to deal with. They need that deeper spiritual life if they're going to go forward as God's people into the future. So how is this going to happen? Well, it was going to happen through the reading of God's word publicly and the people responding to that word. And here's a point worth sort of underlining. Are we all right? Am I doing something wrong here? Uh, Is that on? Yeah, perhaps that's... Okay, thank you. Here's a point worth underlining that both nationally and locally... If the church desires renewal, and indeed revival, then the Bible needs to be central to that. In any revival in church history, as I'm sure some of you will be aware, the Bible has always been central to that revival. No revival has happened without a a return to God's word, and then from God's word into prayer, and seeking God, and so on. In the Old Testament itself, we read the remarkable story in 2 Kings 22 of Josiah the king, who at 16, 16 years of age, started a reform of the temple and the worship of God's people. In 2 Kings 22, we read about how um, a priest called Hilkiah found a copy of the book of the law. It had been hidden away on some shelf somewhere. No one had been reading it for ages. He finds this book. 
he, he brings it to Josiah and the priests and they start to look at it and they think, help, we haven't been doing it right for many, many years. We need to return to God and we need to return to his word. And revival in Israel began because they started reading again from the book of God's law. The same thing happened again in our country and in Europe during the, what we call the Reformation. At its heart, it was a rediscovery of what the Bible has to say to ordinary people and how the Bible needs to be central in the lives of the church and of God's people. The Roman Catholic Church had very much neglected the Bible. The priests were speaking Latin and many of them didn't understand the Bible and it took people of great courage to translate the Bible into English and to make it known and understood. Our third slide here shows a couple of characters from our country who were involved in that sort of translation before the Reformation started, actually. John Wycliffe and William Tyndale had laboured to get the Bible translated into common English so everyone, in theory, could read it. Martin Luther did a similar thing in Germany. So by the time of the Reformation, they had Bibles in English and people, in theory, could now all read it for themselves. Notice here in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra is not just another Bible preacher. He's more like a Tyndale or a Wycliffe. In other words, he's trying to make sure the Bible is both heard by the common people and understood in their own language too. Look at verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Verse 5. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people stood up. The word of God was was really given pride of place. This was an important occasion. Everyone recognized it. So Ezra had to be seen and heard. And that's a pretty essential part of a a preacher's uh, itinerary, isn't it? You need to see the preacher and hear them. I hope you can all see me and hear me. They even built a special thing for him to stand on to make sure nobody had any excuse. Everybody could hear and see what was going on. I guess if that had been today, they'd have put microphones in front of him and he'd probably have had a video back projection or a PowerPoint like we've got here today. But no, they didn't have those things in those days. It was just the word of God and the voice of Ezra. But it wasn't just a reading of the law that took place. What's the point in reading it if people don't understand it. What was the point of of Latin services in the Middle Ages if people didn't understand what was being said? So the law here is explained. Look at verses 7 to 8. The Levites, I'm going to skip their names, (laughs) instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. Notice that. Making it clear, giving the meaning, and understanding follows. I love it. It's so practical, isn't it? Such common sense. What's the point in reading it if the people don't understand it? How critical it is that God's people don't just read the word of God, but they understand it too. And that, of course, is why... Churches should give pride and place to someone who can expound the word. I kind of think back to my classroom and uh, the week before half term. 
And I was reading a section from an A-level um, RE textbook with my sixth form students. And I noticed that glazed look in their eyes as I was reading it with them. It wasn't just because it was Monday morning. They just really weren't getting it. It was quite complicated, actually. It was the ontological proof for the existence of God, which isn't easy on a, on a good day, and it's really bad on a bad day. And I knew I needed to do something, because it just wasn't working. So I said to them, look, you're not getting it, are you? They said, no. <laughs> I said, OK, look, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll read a section, then I'll stop, and I'll talk about it with you and explain it. You can ask questions. When we're finished, I'll move on and read the next bit. Is that okay? So we did it. And lo and behold, by the end of the lesson, they were going out saying, yeah, got that, sir, thank you. Yeah, good, good. Well, that was good, that was good. So it was read, explain, read, explain. And that's what Ezra does here. I think it looks as if from reading this passage, he would read a section from God's law, then his assistants, who were sort of strategically uh, appointed round the, round the square, would then interpret it or translate it or explain it to the people who were listening. This is why it took hours and hours and hours. Okay? Six hours of that, which is why I think they probably only got to Leviticus. So notice my first point, the people's reading of the law. Secondly, notice the people's respect for the law. I had to read the Bible, first of all. I had to treat it with respect. That was the second thing I had to do. Well, picture the scene here in Nehemiah 8. Ezra mounts this podium, Torah scroll or book in hand, and much as the winners of the FA Cup did yesterday, he holds high the law and the people respond. Their immediate response was to do what you did, which was to stand up. Imagine that. Thousands of people suddenly rise into their feet as the word of God is shown to them. What respect. What a sight that must have been. What a response to the opening of God's word. And the preacher hasn't even started to preach yet. And they're already on their feet. Wow. Ezra unrolled the parchment. All the people stand. And that's a mark of respect. Standing was a posture of respect in those days. It still is today, of course, isn't it? Men would stand before the king. Angels stand before God's throne. It's a mark of respect. Last week, I returned to the church I was vicar of because the vicar who replaced me is now about to leave. So I went there to say goodbye to him, and we had a sort of a get-together. One elderly parishioner who was there for the entire time I was there as vicar, who initially I had a real sort of battle with to sort of convince him that I was doing the right thing by coming and inviting families to church and all that kind of thing. By the end, he was, my gre- he was a great supporter and, and respect to me, which was lovely. I, f- I saw him in a corner on, on, on this um, Friday evening. I went over to him and I, I sh- held out my hand. And he's a bit disabled, but he tried to stand up. And I said, no, no, John, don't, don't. And it was just so lovely and moving that he wanted to make the effort to stand as a mark of respect to me. That was a beautiful thing that he did. He didn't have to. It wasn't necessary. In the Anglican Church, um, it's customary in some churches to stand for the reading of the gospel. And I think that's good in a way, because it's saying that what we're about to read, and it's normally, of course, the words of Jesus, uh, those words are important and they deserve respect. So standing is a good thing. Respect and honour 
for the word of God, not because this is God, no, this is God's words. And because it's God's words, we should treat it with respect. Now, I don't need to tell you that in the world today, this book is not treated with respect by many people, is it? I have a sad story with a nice ending. When I was in my previous school on the island, um, the Gideons would come in and, and they would do their little talk and they would give out their New Testaments, these New Testaments they, they give out. Have you seen these little red Bibles? And this would happen every, every year. Um, on this particular year, and I don't know why it happened on this year, I think it was probably the way it was done. It was done just before break or lunch or something. This assembly took place, and the Gideons did their little talk, and they gave out their New Testaments to all the, the New Year Sevens, I think they were. Um, by the end of break or lunch, I can't remember which one it was, there were many of these New Testaments lying on the playground all over the, the school site. Some had been ripped up, some had been thrown into bins, some were just flapping in the wind and everything. It was just, it was just so sad. And we're talking about quite a few. One lad came to see me and he said to me, um, Sir, I'm really upset because people have just disregarded the Bible and they've disrespected it and all that kind of thing. What can we do? I said, well, it's fantastic you come to see me. He was a Christian boy. And I, I said, well, why don't you get one or two of your friends and see if you can pick them all up? And he did that. He spent his whole break or lunch going around the site. At some cost to himself, of course, picking up these Bibles off the floor and putting them into a bag and bringing them, um, I think he brought them to me. And I just thought, there's respect. But unfortunately, before the respect had been the disrespect. And I think we do live in a society now where many people do not respect this book. They either ignore it or they think it's not worth bothering reading or some people do um, physically try to uh, abuse it. So secondly, notice here the people's respect for the law. And thirdly, notice the people's response to the law. I didn't need just to read it and respect what was in there, but I needed to respond. I knew that. And so we now move to the response. Two things struck me in verse 6. The people raised their hands in celebration and worship. Then they bowed down and worshipped with their faces to the ground. And worship is always a fitting response, is it not, to God's word. And people should feel free to worship as they wish. Yes, put your hands in the air if that's what God says you should do. If that's how you feel you want to worship God, that's absolutely fine. If you want to bow down and worship, that's fine too. And so in the church I am in, Dawn and I are in, we have people who stay seated, people who are standing, people who have their arms in the air, people who have their heads bowed. We have everything happening. And that's fine because individually we respond to God in the most appropriate way for us. But notice how here the worship follows the reading of the law. That's the right way, isn't it? We, we, we learn what God wants, what he requires, and then we worship him and we respond accordingly. How else did the people respond? Well, in verse 9 we read, our next slide there, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So there are tears being shed as people realise how far short they've fallen from God's requirements. Verse 9, then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food to those who have nothing and to celebrate with great joy. So weeping as a sign of humility and repentance. And then in verse 12, when it's explained to them that actually they can move beyond that, there's a sense of joy and a sense of generosity as they realize what God is requiring from them as, uh, as his people. Was that it? No, because in verse 13, as I've already said, they came back the next day for more. And it was on this second day that they heard 
that God's command was to celebrate a feast, a festival called the Festival of Tabernacles. And they then started to organize that feast of the tabernacles, which has continued ever since in the Jewish calendar. All of that comes from the reading of God's law. Reading God's word and hearing it explained led to worship and obedience. The true marks of renewal and indeed of revival. And so a question to all of us. How excited and keen are you to hear God's word read and preached? And what importance do you give to that word? I mean, do you regularly meet in a group to study God's word together? Do you have regular habits of Bible reading? Do you give pride a place on a Sunday to the reading of God's word and to its exposition? Guard that, because it's vitally important. Nehemiah says in verse 3 that all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. That's a pretty good attention span, isn't it, for six hours. I mean, I'm happy to get 15 minutes out of my sixth form and about 10 minutes out of my lower school. Six hours, not bad. How do you respond to God's word? With awe and reverence? With worship? Sometimes with tears? With joy and generosity? All those are responses which are appropriate and I would say probably essential if you're reading God's word and hearing from God in the way you should. And obedience. Let me read to you some words from Acts chapter 2, which struck me as I was preparing for this um, this today. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. Those who accepted uh, Peter's message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, And many wonders and miracles were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." They devoted themselves, says Luke, to the apostles' teaching. Devoted themselves. They were devoted to it. And that's why the church grew in the way it did. At the heart of church growth is knowing God, knowing his will, knowing his laws, and then responding to that in obedience and worship and faith and uh, good living. And remember... This response from these people in Nehemiah's day was based on five books. We have 66, which I can't do with my fingers. It would take too long. They had only human teachers. We have the saving story of Jesus and the Holy Spirit as our teacher. How much more should we, in a sense, respond than they did? So can I finish with three points? Yes, the word of God must take central place to safeguard us from error, both old and new. The New Testament warns us that people will come with new ideas and people will have itching ears. And we know all about that today, don't we? There's any number of theories and ideas and things out there. And we need to be anchored 
in God's word and to know what God's word is saying about these situations if we're going to be um, faithful Christian people. Jesus said to the people of his day, on the next slide, you have a fine way of disregarding the word of God so that you might keep your own traditions. He's talking to the Pharisees of his day who were very keen on this is how we do it. This is how we've always done it. This is what we think we should do. But they were not so keen on what does God say about this? What's his law saying? You have a fine way of disregarding the word of God. You've become very clever at it. You've become religiously clever at it. We need to bring every tradition in church, life, in public life, in our own lives, to God's word and say, is this of God? Is this what God's law wants or not? Second point. In Psalm 119, which is full of praise to God's word, nine times the author mentions how God's word brings revival. You only have to read the Acts of the Apostles to see how powerful Scripture is in the early preaching of the disciples. Peter's first sermon on Pentecost is littered with biblical quotations and a powerful retelling of the salvation work of God. On that day, 3,000 people were added to their number. And a respected Bible teacher, Terry Virgo, whose book I've read recently, said this, The apostles were not persecuted by their opponents for filling Jerusalem with their miracles but with their teaching. Interesting that, isn't it? What the people got, what the Christians got persecuted for was their teaching, not so much their miracles. Interesting. Dawn and I, um, in the 80s and 90s, attended some of the Billy Graham rallies in London, and we were struck by how simple biblical preaching called thousands of people to the front to rededicate their lives to God or make that commitment to God for the first time. Just straightforward Bible preaching and teaching. And God's Spirit was able to move amongst the people. I'm sure you want revival and renewal in this church and in this area in which you live. And I hope you're getting the message that the Bible needs to be part of that if it's going to happen. And thirdly, finally, our response Having ears that work doesn't guarantee that we hear, does it? Someone once said, although God God made us with two ears that we cannot close and one mouth that we can, which I think actually could tell us something very important about life, we sometimes close off our minds so that we don't really hear what's being said, even though we do hear the sounds of the words. And you all know what I'm talking about. Someone's speaking to you, yes, yes, but you're busy doing something else. Dawn tells me off for this. She says something to me, and I'm a million miles away, in a newspaper. You're all nodding, aren't you? Why is it the men who are nodding? (laughs) In a newspaper or a book or perhaps on my phone. And I'm hearing the words, but I'm not really listening. And it's perfectly possible for that to happen in relation to the Bible, read or preached. That we're, we're hearing it, but we're not really listening. That's why Jesus had to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, of course, everyone has ears to hear. He who has ears to hear, sounds like some people don't. Well, they do. Jesus is being funny, really, I think, but he's making a point, isn't he? 
Everyone has ears to hear. Use those ears to hear properly, to listen. I love the story of Roland Hill, who was um, an 18th century English preacher, greatly used by God. Someone once complained to Roland that um, they didn't like the preacher in their church because the preacher in their church didn't deliver very interesting sermons and they were boring. Roland, I just don't find him easy to listen to. Roland Hill said this, My friend, supposing you went to hear the will of one of your relatives read and you were expecting a legacy from them, You would hardly think of criticising the manner in which the lawyer read the will. Rather, you would be all attention to hear whether anything was left to you. And if so, how much? That is the way, my friend, you should hear the gospel preached. Ignore the style. Ignore the delivery. Listen to what God is saying to you. And the legacy may be even greater than any financial legacy. What matters to you? The way the message is delivered or whether just whether God might have something very powerful to say to you through the message. So Walter Scott on his deathbed said this, bring me the book. What book? asked a friend. There is but one book, said Sir Walter. Well, actually... There were thousands and thousands in Sir Walter Scott's library, but the friend knew what he meant, and he brought him a Bible. Because for Sir Walter Scott, there was only one book he wanted to read in those final hours of his life. To him, his library was of no consequence now. What mattered was reading God's word and knowing what God had to say to him, not just about his life, but now about the manner of his death. And so, my friends, what will you do this coming week as a response to Nehemiah chapter 8? I'm sure God has been saying something to you this morning. Well, I trust he has. I hope he has. So I want us to be quiet for a moment and just reflect on what I've been saying and trust that as we're quiet, the Holy Spirit may just have one or two things to say to us about this coming week and also for you as a church at this point when some of you are feeling we just don't know where we're going and what the future holds. So can I just invite us to be quiet for a moment and to pray together?